Good morning, Hills family. We doing good? We're doing good, good. Hey, I want to greet everyone that's coming online right now. Uh, good morning over in the Gospel Hour venue right now to my people over there. I think Pastor Scott's over there. Pastor Mike's headed back over there right now. Uh, good morning to OTC, Old Town Campus, Clovis Hills, Old Town Campus. Good morning to you guys. Good morning to the Hills, to Larry Street, all my people out there, the sunny place for shady people, right? Um, good morning to the Hills Nevado, that mighty crew out there. We love you guys. We're glad you're with us. And to our online community. It's our online church. There's people watching right now from um, around the world to or down the street. And we're so glad you guys are with us. Um, it is a great day to be in the house of God, isn't it? Amen. Yeah, it's a good day. It's not going to be 114 today. It's going to be just uh, 112 or something like that. But anyways... <laughs> Hey, um, I'm, I'm excited. A uh, couple things. Uh, one, we've been working on this for a while, and you'll, you'll be the first to hear it. Um, here at uh, the Clovis Hills North Campus, uh, we've been working on a strategic partnership, and it'll affect all of our church, churches and our congregations, but um, it's a beautiful thing. We are going to be uh, partnering with California Baptist University next fall. And we're going to launch a Christian ministries program that will be based here in Clovis. And we're one of the partner churches that's going to help launch that. So, um, uh, the, and the whole, the whole program will work hand in glove with Clovis Community College as, as well. Like you can get all your, your prereqs done there. And they, they have a list of the classes you can take. And boom, you can get right into the Christian ministries program. And I thought, since we were announcing that, I thought it would be very fun to, to bring a guest preacher from California Baptist University. He's a friend of mine and um, just uh, a wise man. And I was going to say a wise guy, but that, that, he's not a wise guy. He won't have you executed or anything like that. Um, but uh, Joe Sluniker, let me tell you a little about him before, before I bring him up. Um, Dr. Joe Sluniker is a professor of Old Testament studies. And he, so you're going to get an Old Testament message today, but you'll get Jesus too. I'll tell you that. I've already seen his message. It's going to be awesome. Um, he is an uh, Old Testament professor at California Baptist University. He's also in charge of the Christian Ministries program. And what I love about California Baptist University, huge school down in Riverside, um, they're not just ivory tower academics. He is also the pastor of Not Avenue Christian Church. So he, um, he's just not a guy living in the ivory tower. He's down in the dirt, with, in the mud with us pastors being one. So you guys are in for a special treat. And I would love it on every campus, everywhere we're at, if you would give a warm welcome to Dr. Joe Sluniker. Thanks, brother. Clovis Hills, it is a joy to be with you today, and I'm so excited about this partnership. Starting a year from now, a fully accredited bachelor's degree in Christian ministries located here in town in conjunction with the local church. If you want to learn more about that, I'll be hanging out in the lobby afterwards. But now, we're going to go to the Word. My responsibility today is to demonstrate that Jesus is the center and the point of the entire Bible. This is a big book. This is one book composed of 66 different books, written over a long period of time. But there is a single focal point to this entire story, and that is Jesus Christ. We enter into the Word this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, and we're going to start in verse 45. In Matthew 27, 45, we find ourselves in the tense moment of Jesus' crucifixion. 
My friends, we use the word gospel, and that word means good news, and what we usually mean by it is the story and significance of Jesus Christ. But there are some tense moments here. I mean, here we find ourselves in a place of darkness. In Matthew 27, 45, it reads, Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And, and what has brought us to this moment? Just a little time before, Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends, one of his disciples. With a kiss of betrayal, he was handed over to the guards, and from that moment until we get here, Jesus has been mocked, Jesus has been scorned, he has been beaten. The crowd around him has been screaming for his life, crucify him, crucify him. His blood be on us and on our children. He was made to carry his own cross, and he took it to the top of that hill with the help of a bystander, and there they nailed him to that cross. Some of his disciples have fled and run like cowards. There are some, including the incredible women of his life, that are here in this moment. Mary looking at her son bleeding, hanging from this cross. This is a dark moment indeed. Of the several things that Jesus says from the cross, I want to hone in on one of them, and in particular the way that Matthew frames this. So chapter 27, verse 45, it makes the case that this is dark. And by the way, the way that it describes this, there was darkness over the land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. We're talking noon to 3 p.m., a time that's not usually supposed to be dark, and yet there is this darkness physically and heavily spiritually in this time and space. And here, Jesus says this, verse 46, and about that ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this is a significant phrase. And this is strange. It, it, it jumps off the page to us, right? Because if we were to have read the entire Gospel of Matthew from chapter 1 until here, we're not going to see this same kind of construction anywhere else. F follow me for a second. We've got Matthew, right? He, he is one of Jesus' closest guys. He's one of the disciples, right? And he is experiencing this stuff firsthand. Not only this, but everything else in Jesus' life. I mean, earlier on in the Gospel of Matthew, we have got the Sermon on the Mount. Three full chapters, like this long teaching moment, and every one of them, G uh, Matthew is writing down what Jesus has said. Jesus is speaking in a language called Aramaic. But Matthew translates everything he says into a language called Greek. Why? I mean, Matthew is inspired by God to write this down. Why translate what Jesus has said into another language? Well, Greek was the common language, the trade language of the day. It was like English, right? I mean, it almost doesn't matter where you go in the world today. You can find an English speaker somewhere. It was Matthew's preoccupation. I want the message of life, the gospel story, to reach the most amount of ears it possibly can. 
So Matthew is translating everything in Greek. You know, I mean, the big stuff that Jesus says in this book. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, all of that stuff has been translated. And we're reading and we're reading what Matthew has represented. And then all of a sudden, we get to Matthew 27, 46. And he doesn't translate first. Here's your 10-cent word for the day. He transliterates. A translation is when you take one word and then put it in a different language. A transliteration is when you just take a phrase from one language and represent it in different letters. Did you notice that as we read verse 46, that Jesus cries out with a loud voice, and the first thing we read is this phrase we don't understand. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And then Matthew translates. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We as readers are left asking the question, why? What is the significance of this? Why is it that Matthew in this place uniquely not only translates, but he transliterates? Also, we might be taken aback by this phrase a little bit, because this, I mean, it fits the context, right? I mean, Jesus has been betrayed, right? Jesus has been beaten and bruised beyond recognition. His body has been crushed. The weight of sin was so intense that when he was in the garden, he said, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let it be so. But alas, not my will be yours be done. When we see a phrase, a strong phrase like forsaken, we're thinking that that kind of fits the bill. And yet, There's something weird about it, too, because it doesn't sound like Jesus, and it doesn't sound like his message that he said so far. I mean, he said things like, whatever's in the Father's hand are in my my hands. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. All of this unifying language about the significance of his relationship with the Father. Maybe there's something else afoot. Maybe Jesus is pointing us to something. And maybe Matthew, as an inspired writer, is doing everything he possibly can with his pen to point us in this direction. Here is kind of the spoiler alert. I think that Jesus is quoting something here. He's directing his audience to something that was written a long time ago. And here's the deal. Like, like how would you do that in the ancient world, right? Here's your second 10-cent word for the day, versification. By the way, I'll give you extra credit if you slip these words into a conversation at lunch today, right? Don't mind me, I'm just transliterating, versifying, if you will, right? Versification, fancy word that corresponds to the chapters and verse numbers, right? I told you to turn to Matthew 27, 45. Those are the verses, the versification, right? How long do you think our Bibles have been versified? Because surely when Matthew was writing this, he didn't write 27, colon, 46, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice, right? Versification, how long do you think has it been in our text? I hear 300. Give me another bid. 
500 years, approximately 500 years, that's it. Versification is an incredible tool, but what do you do 501 years ago? When you want to point someone to a particular section of a text, and it's not versified into chapters and verses, how do you point someone there? You can't tell them what page to turn to because it's all written on scrolls. It's like everything is stacked against you. Well, what if you were to quote something incredibly memorable? Like, for example, if I were to say, for God so loves the world, how many people could complete that sentence? Many. Why? Because we know it, right? So here's what I'm getting at. Jesus says in his agony on this dark day, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you've got a physical Bible, you've got to keep your thumb here. But I want to flip backwards. I'm going to go deep into the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 22. In Psalm chapter 22, we are a thousand years before Jesus would be born on this earth. Psalm 22 starts off with some editorial information that that helps us know where it comes from, right? If you're looking in your paper Bible or maybe in your Bible app, you're going to see that just before verse 1, there's a little bit of information, oftentimes in all caps. This is important. This information is actually in the manuscripts. This is a part of Psalm 22, and it tells us, it helps us begin to handle this. Psalm 22, that kind of pre-information, it says, to the choir master, which means that this is a song. According to the Doe of the Don, it actually gives us a little bit of what that musical notation would have been. And then very importantly, a Psalm of David. That's how we can date this psalm. David lived about a thousand years before Jesus. We're talking David and Goliath David, like king of Israel David. What did David write a thousand years before Jesus would hang on that cross? Well, look at verse 1 of Psalm 22. Does this look familiar to us? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every jot, letter, and vowel, and punctuation identical to what Jesus said from the cross. So, what if, my friends, what if Jesus is, is, is saying this in his agony, but he is pointing us to this text? Well, what does this text say then? right? I can imagine that in the crushing brutality of being crucified, he didn't have time to recite this entire chapter, but if he quotes us the first line, let's see where this follows. Let's go to the Word. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm 
and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Does that sound familiar? Does that not sound like a line-by-line, situation-by-situation, exact description of what would happen to our Lord Jesus Christ? And written in a text penned 1,000 years prior to Jesus' birth. The entire Bible points to Jesus Christ. He is the center of this story. I mean, even last week when you were studying the story of Joseph, you see those kind of implicit themes that Joseph is the righteous man who stands up under temptation and saves his people from the famine. We have themes and different ideas that point us to Jesus, the better and perfect Joseph. But here, this is as explicit as it comes. And church family, we owe it to ourselves maybe just to walk through this one more time slowly and pin the tail on the donkey, so to speak. What is this stuff speaking about? We, we, we go back to Psalm 22, verse 1. Once again, Word for word, what Jesus says from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think Jesus is taking us here. And can you imagine? Let let us put ourselves there in the dust at the foot of the cross. Those same antagonists, the violent crowds who were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, It was likely that they had the Old Testament memorized since they were children. And so Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And their mental scriptural Rolodex, ding, Psalm 22. And before their eyes, they see played out exactly what God had written through David a millennium before. As we pick through here, verse 6, Psalm 22, verse 6. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. Think about the violence and vitriol with which this crowd took Jesus to the cross. 
Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. I mean, this corresponds to both the religious community and the Romans. The Romans dress him up like a king. They press the thorns down into his flesh. They mock him. The religious community wags their heads in disgrace, saying, he is not our Messiah. Verse 8, nearly a direct quote He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Do you remember the religious authorities at the foot of the cross saying, oh, let God get you down from that cross. Let God rescue you if you are, in fact, the Messiah. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their wide, their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. The crowd just just comes in so close, and, and they, they take him to the cross, and they, they crucify him there. I think verse 14 is where it really starts getting interesting, as if it's not interesting so far. Look at this, verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Jesus hangs there on the cross, his joints becoming more and more disconnected. And in one of the last moments to see if he's dead, the Roman soldier takes the spear and stabs it in his side, and blood and water pour out. Thus, his heart is like wax melted within his breast. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. Jesus says before this moment on the cross, I thirst. Verse 16, Dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me, and is this not the most conspicuous connection? Look at the last line of verse 16. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Grapple with this, my friend. Crucifixion as a means of execution had not been invented or popularized by the Romans until 600 years after Psalm 22 was written. And here we have an unmistakable reference to what would happen to Jesus Christ. Verse 17, I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and my clothing by casting lots. Do you remember that they come to Jesus with the hammer to break his legs, but finding him dead, they do not break his bones. Thus, he can count all his bones. And the Romans divide his clothing by casting lots. Line by line, point by point, and I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up right now. My friends, either this is the greatest coincidence in literary history, Or this is the powerful testimony of God letting us know exactly what he would do for us. That was a dark day indeed. And yet, there's still one more thing to look at. We've only read the first half of Psalm 22, and for time's sake, we're not going to deal with the entire second half, but I do want to go to the conclusion. Remember, This psalm started off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's go to verse 30. Psalm 22, verse 30, begins to land the plane on this psalm. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. No no matter where you're hearing this message, whether it is 
at the North Campus or any of the others or online or at a later date, you and I are that coming generation. What is going to be declared? Verse 31, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. In John 19, another gospel, the last words that Jesus says before he dies, it is finished. From beginning to end, Psalm 22 tells us God's exact plan, an exact way of bringing his son to the cross for you and for me. And line by line describes what he would do as Jesus takes a punishment that we deserve. This is the gospel, and this is the Old Testament. We read these gospel stories and we say, yes, these point to Jesus, but this is a text written so long before that tells us exactly how much God loves us because this crushing of his son was done for you and for me. We are that generation yet unborn. We are that coming generation that his righteousness is proclaimed to in this moment. And my friends, he has done it. Thus, if we are sitting under the weight of this word. Here's the deal, folks. We have got to grapple with this. God, in his love for us, sent his son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And he has done it. Our gospel writer, Matthew, points us back to this so that our hearts will be affected and changed. Hearts of stone will be changed to hearts of flesh. Because this is God's love story for you and for I. This is God's testimony of how he saves his people. This is the crescendo and the high point of all of Scripture, pointing to the fact that God doesn't leave sinners to die in darkness, but brings them into the light. That day of crucifixion was dark indeed. But it gave way to a morning three days later where our Savior was risen. Because it is finished, and he has done it. And so here we stand, or sit rather, on a Sunday morning under the weight of a significantly heavy truth. The weight of the knowledge of what Jesus did for us, because we deserve to be on that cross. Here is the incredible, dramatic irony to this entire thing. Jesus quotes that first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which, I mean, that that really stands out. And if we take that on its face value without seeing the Psalm 22 connection, it gives us all kinds of crazy ideas. As if God forsakes his son, as if God forsakes you and I. If you're a Christian in the 90s, do you remember that song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us? There's a line in that song that says, the father turns his face away, which is based, I think, on seeing that, you know, chapter 27, verse 46 says that God forsakes Jesus. 
But when we look at Psalm 22, what we find is that this was a part of God's plan and that God was there. God was on that cross and he bore the sin and the punishment that we deserve to give us life, to give us freedom, to give us purpose, to bring us into a family, and to welcome us home. And today, church family, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this message. Because this is the heart of the gospel. A Savior who was crushed for us that we might have life. Isn't it amazing that the God of the Bible, the center of this entire story, Jesus Christ himself, invites us into his story, invites us into his grace. And so I just want to give a couple of challenges. My friends, if we have sat under the Bible's teaching for many years and it has either become commonplace or boring to us, we must see this with new eyes. Because this inner biblical connection between the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's plan for the entire thing should spur our hearts to such a degree of affection that we can't help but say, it is well with my soul, spirit, and dwell me. And maybe, just maybe, you're hearing this for the first time. What an incredible day to be introduced to the gospel story. Not a whole lot of people know this. This is a scientific fact, though. July 30th is the best day in the calendar year to give your life to the Lord. I mean, it's an indisputable fact. You want to know why? Because it's today. It's today. And if you want to follow this God who took our sin and shame and nailed it to the cross and left it there and invites us into his mercy, my friends, today is the day. Because God loves you. This story is about God inviting you to the table. This whole biblical narrative is about God saving us to be a people for his own possession, to go be a light to the world. And this mechanism that only God, only the sinless one, could be the Savior, only the one who had no sin, only the one who was 100% man and 100% God, Jesus Christ himself, only with the one that not only teaches love to his people, but demonstrates the height of love in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Only this God can cast away our sin and shame. And if you've been trying to, to get out from the burden of sin and shame on your own, I want to invite you to the easy way. Not easy because this is commonplace, or, or, or not worth a lot. But Jesus says, take my yoke because it is light. My friends, if you've got a decision to make for Christ today, you're going to have an opportunity to do that. And I'm asking you person to person, 
you know, drop the titles. This is human to human, eye to eye right now. That if God has inspired your heart in the course of this message, if seeing this inner biblical connection between something that was written on the A.D. side with something that was clearly demonstrated on the B.C. side of history, that this is not a coincidence, but it is God's declaration of what he would do for your salvation. If you've got a decision to make, I invite you to make it today. Family, I, I would ask you now, if we could bow our heads and close our eyes.